0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Dr. Robert L. Jackson. Dr. Jackson is the Chief Academic Officer for a growing network of classical charter schools known as Great Heart Academies. Robert also leads the Institute for Classical Education, which provides conferences, publications, policy analysis, and fellowships that bridge the world of K-12 classical education with the best scholarship and research from higher education. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, our upcoming CLT exam will be held on December 4th. The CLT is an online college entrance exam for 11th and 12th graders. To learn more, visit our website at cltexam.com. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation.
1: Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. We are here today with Chief Academic Officer for Great from Great Hearts, uh, Dr. Rob Jackson, uh, as well as CLT Chief Operating Officer and Great Hearts mom of six, uh, Dr. Tracy Gardner. Welcome, welcome to you both. Thank,
0: well, you. Thank you, you, Jeremy. To Good to be with you. Yeah, it's great
1: to chat. Uh, Dr. Jackson, I'd love to start off, uh, as we do with a lot of our guests, actually kind of hearing about your own education. I I know that you were a professor at the King's College, you're well trained in the classics, uh, but what were you like as as kind of a young boy uh, in the classroom? Were you a voracious reader? Did you like books back then as a little boy? I did, but uh, maybe surprisingly not to the
2: extent that many of my my peers uh, have just dove in, right, to the tradition, but maybe I was a bit of a late bloomer. Uh, Of interest might be, to your audience, the fact that the arts, and specifically drama and music, were what captured my imagination early on, so that by the time I was in middle school and high school, while I maintained, you know, a fine academic standing, the things that I loved or had the greatest passion for uh, were the arts, which in my local public school were essentially extracurricular, right? Or, I mean, there was, there was some of it that was uh, elective, but uh, it was not an integrated facet of my academic experience. Uh, but it was certainly the thing that drew me to what I would later discover was a tradition, a tradition of drama, of poetry, of epic uh, that, uh, that just never let go, right, from those early years.
1: Mm. That's really beautiful. It actually reminds me of Dr. Anika Prather's story of being drawn into the world of the classics and in many ways for her as well as a, as a drama teacher, uh, it was through poetry and drama as well. That, that's, that's really beautiful to hear. Um, and then tell us a bit about your, your academic journey. Uh, what did you do your, your dissertation on, your, your PhD on, and then I believe you ended yep. up at the King's College uh, about 10 years ago. That's right. So I went to the Florida State
2: University for my graduate training. In fact, all of my education uh, throughout from K-12 right on through university and a PhD were in institutions, and, uh, state-run and or, state or, you know, state-sponsored in- institutions. And uh, I ended up at the Florida State University in large measure because of colleagues, colleagues that I met overseas while I was teaching, who encouraged me to look at that route. Uh, there was a Fulbright scholar there in particular a linguist who said, what you really need, Rob, if you enjoy the classroom, as I had come to discover I did, uh, was to return and get the appropriate credential and see if you can't continue what you've begun here uh, in, in in this international context. I was in Hungary for a year teaching future teachers, and I think that really set the stage, certainly piqued my curiosity, and gave me this sense that teachers are... Giving shape to the next generation. Now that's a truism. That's almost obvious. But what I discovered was that, that really, that really caught my, my my mind's eye, my sense of what was possible, that if I could give some shape to the next generation, I could do so through preparing and equipping teachers if I myself could become an effective teacher. So off to Florida State, I went. I was working largely with international students. Uh, I was in English, English education. Uh, but it was there again, as an extension of my time overseas, that I realized how important education was, even at the at the international level in every society. Uh, I finished uh, a PhD and a dissertation that focused on those international students and their performance on uh, on testing. As it turned out, so there's a commonality here that all three of us share, perhaps in the room. Yeah. I was looking at differential. Uh, performance on an ETS, educational testing service metric that's used with international students, because I wanted to get underneath and sort of in and behind what might be culturally significant in terms of how learners, these being international students and second language learners of English, how they came to understand a particular text. Uh, but, but having completed that, went off to New York and took my, uh, my first post out of grad school Uh, eventually landing at the King's College, which was Uh a small liberal arts college. I think it's still relatively small, but it had a core focus, a core curriculum, uh, what's often referred to as the Oxford degree, Politics, Philosophy, and Economics, that was really attractive to me. I came in to provide supportive education, to be effectively the education person or faculty member and oversee their programs. And it was there that I was given the latitude under the guidance of, I think, some very uh, enlightened leadership to pursue what what I would now call a classical school training program, something that would provide teachers uh, the equipment of philosophy and history to really begin looking at education much more broadly uh, than we've done for some time in in most of public education here in the States.
1: Dr. Jackson, um, when we are going to get to great hearts, we're going to, we're going to dig it. And I want to hear this beautiful great Hearts story, but, but first let me put you on the spot and kind of ask you this question that I know you've given this as much thought as anybody else in this classical renewal movement, right? You're talking to a family, they're touring great hearts for the first time. And they're like, what, what is classical education? Like, what is that to somebody who who has never even heard the term? How do you respond in something that's kind of digestible?
2: Yeah. I say effectively that our schools are committed to the essential rudiments of literacy, numeracy, and a coherent curriculum that prepares educated persons, right? So that's to say that when a student has completed his or her program of study, he or she will understand mathematics and history, science and literature, econ and philosophy, and they'll understand these things are of a piece, right? That they cohere hmm. and that those coherent disciplines or subject areas are a part of something larger, namely our human quest. And it's a civilizational quest, right? To understand okay. who we are, right? And how we fit. Hmm. And these these are effectively embodied in perennial questions. What's justice? How do you live a good life? How do you seek the truth and so forth? And And I think parents, that parent or that family that, it, that I'm walking through to school understands that makes sense. That's what education's about. That sounds about right. Yeah. I think, I think, but I haven't heard a lot of that lately when I'm talking to most educationists uh, but it's, it's truly what we're committed to at great hearts.
1: Okay. Well, I want to kind of switch gears and really kind of hear this, this story. I always love hearing this, this story of how something that is well-known and big and respected, kind of starts off, because everything starts off somewhere. Um, So tell us kind of the the short-ish version of the Great Heart story. Who kind of had this initial vision? Uh, Was there a plan to franchise and have many, many Great Hearts, or was it just an idea for an individual uh, school? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh,
2: the Great Heart story begins uh, with a prototype that was located outside of Arizona. Uh, Great Hearts began its purpose and its uh, its mission in the Grand Canyon State, but it was a group of professors and parents and other members of the community, including some who uh, were intimately familiar with the political and educational landscape here in Arizona, who found a private school model that they considered exemplary and were able to bring it with some uh, adaptation right to the state standards and requirements here in Arizona, they were able to bring it into and through the charter mechanism. So probably many of your listeners know that charter schools got started in the mid-90s, first in Minnesota, and then they were adopted in California and Arizona. Arizona was one of the early adopters. So there was a a prototype model uh, that's located even to this day at Tempe Prep, Tempe Preparatory Mm -hmm. Academy, which took this private school curriculum, modified it uh, for charter consumption, and launched to great uh, to great effect, and they were successful. And within a few years, a portion of the leadership at the board level, and even those who were school leaders and teachers within that uh, that school, wanted to to develop or expand and launch what was explicitly intended to be a network of classical schools but in their first iteration their first sort of um, you know statement of purpose they thought that it would be extraordinary to move from a few hundred students in one academy as they had experienced it back in Tempe to produce in 10 years you know 4000 students served uh, by multiple academies 5 to 6 or more and that for them was just really wide-eyed, go for broke, you know, blue sky thinking, which uh, they received support for. There was some, uh, some sound philanthropy that stepped in to say, if you can do that, that which has been done at this charter school there in Tempe, and you can bring that to scale with multiple schools, we will support you in that. And, and so they did. Uh, we launched with a single school and 120 students. That school was a preparatory academy, only grade seven to 12. Uh, but Veritas prep, the first, the original school within the great arts network quickly gained traction among families and within the community. And within just three years, there was call, there was a call for, and obviously the plan to launch another academy at Chandler in, in Chandler, uh, which is a, a you know metropolitan Phoenix area, so Chandler Prep was born, and and thereafter there was a school in Mesa and Glendale, so the multiplication of the academies uh, in the first decade went from 120 students in a single academy to nearly 7,000 students within 10 years, and uh, that. Obviously, exceeded their expectations, their their dream, their plan, right to, to reach four thousand students. They were well above that, but it was clear that the demand for this form of education uh, among families and the interest among educators and school leaders that that Great Hearts was able to locate uh, was such that uh, that they it was as though they couldn't put the lid on it. The thing was out and uh, and growing, an organism that. I think probably surprised everyone. Yeah. Um, so it was really impressive in that first decade.
1: Yeah. So we're going to hear in just a minute from a great hearts mom and chief operating officer here at CLT, Dr. Tracy Gardner. Um, well, one more question for you. We've got a lot of teachers who are listening. Many actually I can defend out the, this past week, uh, public school teachers who, who regularly listen to the anchor podcast. Um, and some of the conversations I've had, they say, well, we, we read some of these same books, you know, um, is, is it a a spectrum is classical ed an either or, or is it more like you're on a spectrum of very classical or kind of somewhat um, and, and talk to us about the actual kind of meat, like what, what makes as chief academic officer, what makes great hearts different from a typical public school? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think the curriculum at great hearts is definitely more stable and coherent than much of what we're going to see. Uh, in our public counterparts. And, as I said, I was publicly educated all the way through, right? So uh, I, I know of whence I speak. But if you just look at, and of course, if you listen to many of our of our great historians of American education, uh, this has been described as a a real turn, kind of an a, a move from the essential linaments of what we would have called in the past the liberal arts, where again, mm-hmm. elementary and secondary schools were providing, those essential subjects and this harkens back even you know if i was to give you kind of a a milestone you'd go back and and your listeners could go take a look at and get online look at what the committee of 10 produced back in 1892 and they were setting expectations there were you know three school leaders so three principals four college presidents including the then uh, president of harvard who were articulating these are the basics right mathematics languages including latin and greek science, English, history, civics, you know, it was all of a piece. It all had to be there. And I think that Great Hearts is picking up on a great American tradition of education that has been displaced over the last century or so by what I would probably refer to as a kind of progressive, social, transformative approach with a rather romantic view of childhood, right, where those rudiments that I spoke of a moment ago are now displaced with a kind of educational uh, apparatus that tends to pursue very much of the moment, kind of interesting, again, socially transformative projects. So to your question or your teacher question, right? uh, Aren't we doing some things that are classical? Of course, of course, anytime we're still turning back to or returning to uh, great sources, anytime we're primarily focused on the teaching of the subject matter, when we have a pedagogy that inspires students to go ever deeper and to ask the right questions and to continue to explore and understand the world in which we live, then you're drawing upon the what we today call the classical tradition. So that can be found in schools across the country, I'm sure, in pockets here and there with individuals here and there, uh, like myself, right, as I was sort of coming of age looking for more. Uh, but I would say that in schools like Great Hearts, in classical schools across this country, the coherence, right, and the stability of the curriculum, and again, a related pedagogy, is what distinguishes those schools from the more typical counterpart.
1: I want to turn on and hear from Dr. Gardner. And I have heard this story a number of times, but I love hearing it every time because it's a really beautiful story of you discovering great hearts. And what what struck me is that although you were so blown away with the curriculum, the first thing that caught your attention wasn't curriculum. It was culture. Uh, and it was the way that these young students were behaving, that they were interacting. Um, i I love to hear this kind of story. You and Doug going into your first great hearts and touring. Tell us about this.
3: Yeah. So I was a homeschooling family and I was very happy homeschooling. I thought homeschooling was going to be our life, but a homeschooling family of mine suggested that we take a look at great hearts. And so we did, my husband and I, Took the tour, and when we first got there, we first went into the kindergarten classroom, and this adorable little kindergartner came up to me, and she introduced herself as the ambassador of the class. She stuck out her hand, firmly shook our hand, and welcomed us, and indicated that they were doing their spalding lesson, which is their their phonics instruction. And she spoke to me as if she was a teenager, but yet she was. Five years old, and I, I just couldn't believe her her de- her demeanor and her her character and and just her sense of of leadership, and so that was my first introduction. And then I moved over to the third grade classroom, and the students were all sitting up straight in their desks, and they had their book out, and they were in the middle of their literature discussion. And you could see notes in the margin, and the, the teacher was reading aloud with the students. And they were actually engaging in a Socratic discussion on the book, and the students were referred to um, as scholars. Um, And in my case, my children are known as Miss Gardner or Mister Gardner. And again, it just it almost looked like you were in a college classroom where you have these beautiful minds that are engaging with great texts. They they weren't reading boring leveled readers that were printed on just a few pages of paper, they were reading great books and talking about great books and learning history through literature. And that was just beautiful. And then I moved on, they took us to a seventh grade classroom and I watched a Socratic discussion go on in a, a class. It was a sort of a history uh, language arts. It looked like it was maybe a little bit combined on both. And again, it just, it was, it was amazing to me to watch these, you know, 11 and 12 year olds just engaged in conversation that sounded like they should be in a college seminar class. And as you walk through the hallways, there was beautiful artwork everywhere. And children were behaved. They were joyful. They, they seemed to be filled with a sense of wonder. And we we watched children outside on the playground, uh, running around and being traditional kids. But as soon as the teacher gave the signal, the kids were immediately in line, ready to go, ready to learn. Um, and so one of the things I love so much about Great Hearts was I obviously the curriculum, but I loved the way the students treated each other, that they, showed respect, that they had virtues. There was there was virtue signs all over the classrooms as you walk down the hall. And then the other thing I loved about great hearts is the connection with parents. Parents basically make a commitment to be dedicated to the education of their children. And we are, we are required to read to our children every night. We're required Mm -hmm. to look at their agenda and sign, you know, we get to see their behavior chart and we have to sign that we reviewed it. And every week I get a folder that comes home with all of my student work that's graded so that I can stay up to date with how the children are doing. And then we do a curriculum night once a year where we, the parents go into the classroom and we have a miniature lesson in the exact same way that our children do. So you get to experience a day in the life of what your children go through. And to, to me, all of those other elements, in addition to the curriculum, is what made it our school. Mm-hmm. Great Hearts is, a, is an extension of our family. When my children are there, I know they're well taken care of. I know they're going to be held accountable. And when, when Great Hearts sends my well-educated child home, we we are going to continue that, that tradition at home as well. And the headmaster even told us in the lower school, she said, you know, if, if your kids forget their homework at school... Don't come back and get it. Help them learn the consequences. They will be able to do their work, but they're going to have to, there's a consequence to it. And and please, if you send your kids to school and they forget your lunch, don't bring the lunch to school. We will make sure they get something to eat, but I can guarantee you they won't forget their lunch again if they have to go through the hot lunch line and they're ones that only want to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich they bring from home. And so I absolutely loved the partnership between the faculty and leadership and what we're doing at home and how we, we support and serve each other, which sounds very, very different to what's what I'm hearing going on at school board meetings across the country where parents don't even seem to be wanted uh, to know what's going on in the classroom. And in my experience at my school at great hearts, Northern Oaks in San Antonio, Texas, it's completely opposite. So while the curriculum kind of sells itself, I would say to me, the culture is even more important because Mm. the children Mm. generally care for one another. They they have houses where they they do um, they do academic Olympics and, and physical types of Olympics. They have these field days where they compete against each other, but in a way of the tradition of Athens and all of these things mm. together just make for not only an educated mind, but also an educated heart and soul. Mm. And these children that go through school together and they graduate together, I've seen former graduates of Great Hearts at our, at our local football games and our volleyball games and our homecoming they come back once, once you've been there and you've been educated there and you've built relationships there, you, you come back. And that's also similar with our, with our faculty and teachers, our faculty and teachers, they, they treat our children as if they're an extension of their own family. You know, we hear about their weddings. Um, Our, one of our teachers just got married recently and the students all got together and sent a gift. Uh, He actually got married up in the Virginia area, but the students couldn't go, but they sent a gift. And um, my teachers have come to watch my daughters dance in the Nutcracker with Ballet San Antonio. They've, they wanted to support them. They've come to watch my kids compete in gymnastics competitions. And so I routinely Mm -hmm. see that, that relationship building that that's, you're not just a teacher, you're, you're actually an extension beyond that. And so there's the great hearts infiltrates, not only the mind, but the heart as well. And that's, one of the many, many reasons that I'm blessed to have my kids
1: there. I, I love that story. I love that that you and Doug didn't really have any intentions of actually enrolling your kids there. You were just going to kind of check it out, and then you're like, "Oh, wow! Like we could totally do this." But these are not like separate, different value props. Like on the one hand, we've got great curriculum. On the other hand, we've got an amazing culture. These are very much connected. Uh, Dr. Jackson, can you kind of unpack this connection between a rich, cohesive, coherent curriculum? and this life-giving culture.
2: Be happy to, and of course, uh, I won't be able to add to Tracy's eloquence, but perhaps just exposit a bit what she's just described, because from that five-year-old that she first witnessed with that maturity level, the way she held herself, the way she spoke to the seventh grade classroom where she witnessed a Socratic discussion, the art she saw on the walls, all of that, and the way students Treat one another the way faculty and staff and students the way the community coheres. This is essential, and I'm sure some of your listeners have detected, even in my earlier remarks, that the curriculum really does imply a distinct pedagogy. Right? We have a method to this approach in reading through great works, in uh, promoting genuine conversation around perennial questions, because we believe that students are learning by apprenticeship. Now, that's kind of an old-fashioned word, but in fact, it's true in any in any area of life where uh, learning how to do something is as important as the sort of knowledge that one can check off, right, of the list. We apprentice when we join a team, right, a sports team. We apprentice if we learn a musical instrument. We apprentice if in terms of the life of the mind, as we come to understand how to think and how to think with clarity and precision. And so our students, though they are in fact reading through a fairly, as I said, stable and coherent curriculum with subjects that are defined well and carefully, they're also a part of this community that shows them, as you mature, and maturity is is throughout this, just as Tracy pointed out, we're going to teach you, Because you're going to be developing and being equipped to think as other great thinkers have done, right? You'll be paying close attention to their works, in part because we want you to be able to think as they have thought, sort of mirroring or or, uh, echoing those great thinkers so as to become truly capable of an individual thought, right? An expression of one's own thinking. We want them and this is important tracy pointed out that there were there's art on all of our walls but do know that the arts curriculum from music to drama poetry to fine arts visual arts all of that is woven in and it is of a piece with the rest of the curriculum because again we're apprenticing these students to learn how to produce art by discovering how great artists advanced those forms and contributed using their media. We also teach our students, and this is very important, and again, Tracy mentioned the Socratic method, we're teaching our students to learn how to probe, to ask good and important and defining questions because they're becoming familiar with the perennial questions and how those questions have been asked over time, over generations. They all pertain to the human experience and they're going to be doing this. Our students will do this year over year over year. So. This, this masterwork emphasis, this great books approach, right? The Socratic environment is really just the backdrop, the milieu for our schools at Great Hearts, because that's the culture. And it depends on the people, the faculty, the staff, the leadership who are actively promoting, and you'll see it everywhere at Great Hearts. You'll see them say, we are in pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. That's not a catchphrase. Now, it's not a catchphrase. It's really a cultural imperative because we believe that human beings are intellectual, moral, and spiritual beings, that they need truth to satisfy the intellect. They need goodness to fulfill their moral being, and they need beauty to lift the spirit. And that's the school, school culture of excellence and human flourishing that we're all aspiring to. That's a community affair, as Tracy just described it.
3: Rob, I'd like you to expand upon the classics to keep that Great Hearts uses. When, when we sit around our dinner table at night, we t- actually mm-hmm. talk about those stories and we it, it, it impacts our family. It impacts our children because they're all reading them as they go throughout. Can you talk a little bit about where the idea of classics to keep came from and how your faculty and staff goes about selecting which works are going to go on that list and why it's so important to have that?
2: Yeah, well I would I would simply harken back to your earlier comment how important it is that parents are involved in their children's education. We do believe at Great Hearts that parents are the first educators. You know that Latin phrase in local parentis? We believe that. When they come into the the, the classroom, we are essentially being given uh, your trust as a parent to pick up where you left off. So we want to make sure that what we're doing in the classroom syncs up with that which you do in in your home. So this idea of the classics to keep is really an extension of our interest in trying to facilitate or encourage that back and forth between the families and the school, uh, between the classroom and the home by bringing some of the content that we are using or that we are presenting to students, that we're reading with them, that we're exploring with them into your home, So that what they hear at the school and what they hear at home are echoes of one another, that there's that sort of constant refrain exploration. And as I said a few moments ago, it really is important, crucial, that the experience of asking those questions and probing the works and starting to understand that layer after layer after layer, there's no one right answer. There's no sort of, let me say better, there's no simplistic answer to what it means to live well, to live a good life, but rather one needs to have experiences uh, far and wide, first within one's family, and then through the extension of this great literature, of philosophy, of history. And we want those books to be in your house. We, We selected those that we felt would be most accessible, something that parents could easily dip into and then prompt the conversation that we would love to see you having at home that then inspires your student, your child, to come back into the classroom motivated to get into the, to the conversation the very next day. So that was the, the thinking. And by the way, our curriculum generally, as I said, a lot of stability, a lot of coherence, but we will occasionally just go back and revisit what are we reading and how is it affecting the students, something like a three to four-year cycle where we're looking at it. Uh, across the network to make sure we've got the right the right fit, but those resources that you just mentioned, Tracy, are intended to uh, shore uh, to, to to bolster the exchange between the home and the classroom to just make sure that the conversation continues after school hours.
3: Yeah, that's amazing. I I really love how the classics to keep aligns with our author bank here at CLT. The the passages that we put in front of students on our classic learning tests, whether it's at seventh and eighth grade, at ninth and 10th grade, or at 11th and 12th grade align so beautifully to what your list is. The first time my girls took the CLT eight when they were in middle school they talked about that they got to read the Federalist Papers. They got to read de Tocqueville. They got to read Shakespeare on a standardized assessment. And they said it was so much more interesting, mom. It's still a test. You know, taking a test is not as fun as going to ballet class. But nevertheless, if I'm going to take a test, I love taking a test that talks about the same authors that we've talked about Mm -hmm. in our humane letters class or in our our Mm -hmm. literature Mm -hmm. class. And we love that we have a very similar alignment. When I first... Uh, came to CLT, and I I learned about CLT as a mom first, and I was looking at our author bank, it was remarkable how much overlap there was between the authors and our author bank and the kinds of passages we're putting in front of students. And exactly the kinds of great works that great heart scholars are reading in class. And so it makes for so much of a more humane experience for students when they're trying to get into college and they have to take a a college entrance exam. Why not take one that's mirrored off of the beautiful education you've had Mm -hmm. and then help that to get you into the kind of program in college that that also focuses on that formation, Not, not just the formation of your mind, but also the formation of the Seven liberal arts and the, the pursuit of truth, goodney, and goodness and beauty. And so my kids, they might be unique, but they have found that they want to go to a college that continues to teach in the same ways that they've learned at Great Hearts. Mm-hmm. They're not really interested in going to. A, a routine college that's that's kind of out there right now that that doesn't promote the liberal arts that just lets you take whatever you want to take you don't want to take english you don't have to you don't want to take philosophy you don't want to take economics that's fine we'll give you whatever you want to take my kids don't want to do that because you know my my daughters are are they're they're taking the latin and greek sequence in in the upper school and mm-hmm, they would have mm-hmm. never considered taking greek before but because it was offered before them and they thought this is the foundation upon which all all languages are coming from that they want to explore. Um, They're taking, Grace is in um, ninth grade. So she's in Latin three. Angelina just finished uh, 10th grade last year. So she took Latin four. Now she's in Greek one. And she probably is not going to be a classical linguist or she's not going to take classical languages as a major when she goes to school. But she wants to go to a college that still requires some sort of foreign language requirement. She still wants Mm -hmm. to go to a college that requires history and English and mathematics and science. Um, And so your school has laid out a beautiful education and so many kids end up going into a college that doesn't continue to uh, to promote that. So one one final question for me before I turn it back to Jeremy, what what is it that Great Hearts is doing to try to help students explore pathways into college that will allow those students that want to continue their beautiful classical education? what what are you all doing to help open those doors that there are options out there besides just the state schools? And not, that's not to say that, that that there's not some great programs at state schools. Mm-hmm. I know Arizona State University, for one in your state, has a has a wonderful honors college that still has a core curriculum in liberal, liberal arts tradition. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the things that you're trying to do to, to continue to pursue students through that truth, goodness, and beauty through the liberal arts as they move on into yeah. college? Well,
2: we do have a robust college counseling sequence uh, in the schools, whereby we provide parents and their their children with an understanding of how that process of application and admissions unfolds. We want to make sure that we're walking them through step-by-step, year-over-year, especially in those four secondary years of the high school. Those grades are crucial, and it is important as early as ninth grade to be thinking about this. We did just three and a half years ago, as uh, Jeremy knows, and I think now you've come to understand, Tracy, we did prop up the Institute for Classical Education in part to make a direct connection, to be taking stock of what's happening in higher education in order to provide and equip teachers and school leaders, and I think by extension, to some extent, college counselors with a better understanding of what's happening that genuinely is constant constitutive of liberal education? What's really liberal in higher ed today? There are plenty of examples of the illiberal qualities or at times the sort of stifling uh, features of higher education that I think we need to be mindful of, we need to um, draw attention to, but more importantly, in my estimation, and I think for great arts generally, is to lay emphasis on the good things that are happening, namely those institutions of higher ed, where an Honors College, as you mentioned, uh, a program, a center, uh, an institute, or some very specific program on campus that does retain a center, a core, uh, can be found at institutions across the land. And with more than 3,000 institutions of higher education, we have a lot of work to do to survey that landscape and provide our families with some sense of where to go or what to at least consider based mm-hmm. on the needs and the, the interests of their students, right? where they want to be, what they would like to develop in terms of, of uh, a, a focus, a major, an area of expertise, but also how they can continue, as you just said, Tracy, uh, the quality of their education that they began in high school and for many of them before that. That's really important to us. And so the Institute is starting to uh, amass and, and put together essentially content, materials, even research that does survey the landscape and provide our families with some understanding through our college counseling. And ultimately, I think uh, we will need to do it on a on a sort of a larger scale by promoting and reporting on what's good and even great in higher education, in American higher education today. Um, I think one of the, and I'll just sort of say this as a, as a quick uh, comment, I think part of what CLT has brought to this market and to classical education in particular is not just an alternative test, which itself is valuable, as you just described it, Tracy, because it focuses on texts that are recognizable from a tradition that we're promoting in our schools, schools like Great Hearts. But CLT has also begun to create real synergy, real energy, real kind of uh, uh, interest in classical education among colleagues in higher education. So even as we're trying to do something at at the Institute for Classical Education at Great Hearts, I think CLT is doing this work by attracting the types of institutions of higher education that recognize the importance or the centrality of a genuine liberal education. And for that, I am truly thankful. I've been pretty quick, as I think you both know, to tell others, this is what you will find in that list of more than 200 schools that are signing on for CLT, to accept CLT. You're finding fellow travelers. You're finding institutions that really understand what a classical education entails. So thank you for that.
1: Dr. Jackson, uh, final question. We always end the Anchor podcast talking about books, and we have known each other now for for five years. And I have some good memories of just just how passionate you get talking about books. I know that the work you do, it flows out of this, this very real, very deep love uh, for literature, for philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got me reading Willa Cather last year, by the way, which I loved. Uh, Death Couch, <laughs> the So good. I'm going to read it again. Um, what do you come back to there? Are there, are there a couple of books you're like, like I do Orthodoxy every year. Chesterton's kind of my sanity. Mm-hmm. Is there a book you come back to kind of every year that is maybe most influential on you?
2: First, I just want to say, Jeremy, you've got good taste starting with Chesterton and, and leading on to Cather and others. Uh, and I delight in the fact that the folks you're bringing onto this podcast and into your circle, uh, have similarly good taste. That's why I think we get along so well. It's going to sound like a hedge to your, to your question, but there are two types of texts, two types that I really am drawn to time and again. And it captured my imagination over the years and certainly driven me into what I consider my vocation, uh, this tradition of classical ed. It's the poets. And the philosophers, right? So we read Homer, and you can't, you just can't get to the bottom of Homer. You can read him over and over and over again and find once and and forever more qualities to the work that he and the Greek dramatists have produced. So if I think of the poets in the Greek antique world, I also put them up against Plato and Aristotle, and I can't go back to them enough, right? Time and again, there's a dynamic tension between what I consider the deep well of affection, right, that the poets focus on, and these careful, rational, uh, philosophic works that show us how to use the mind. And it, Mm. it just continues right on through the tradition, right? Because you've got, for example, Virgil's founding myth of Rome, the Aeneid, but it's alongside Cicero's statesmanship, yeah? Or Dante, think of that epic journey through hell all the way up to the beatific vision But you also have Aquinas and his clear thinking, drawing upon Aristotle, as you know. Mm. What about Shakespeare's drama and Locke's political philosophy? Or for me, as the American that I am, I love Robert Frost's poetry. But I love reading the philosophers, right, um, of, of the modern world and understanding where we are. So the poets and philosophers, again, side by side, because I love that interaction between heart and mind right? Sentiment and rationality. Uh, Robert Frost set of poetry, it's a momentary stay against confusion. And it's all based on the experience of a thought felt thing. And that's what the tradition is in a nutshell, right? We study the tr- tradition to find our way in the world, you know, a way that's thoughtful and great hearted. That,
1: that is absolutely beautiful. Um, I, I do have one because I'm thinking about it, kind of final follow-up again. So parents sure, listening sure. to this, um, from what I hear, and this is a case I see in Florida as well, a lot of these classical charter schools, and I know it's a case with great hearts, have these massive waiting lists. Um, mm-hmm. What, what is, is kind of the future? How quick are y'all going to be rolling schools out? And what's your advice to a parent of, you know, there's just not a possibility to do private school or homeschool and they, they can't get off the waiting list at great hearts? Well, we've got some options. Uh, we
2: are going to be in additional states in the next five to six years, three more uh, minimally. And, uh, and even now, next year, next fall, we will be, uh, we'll be launching a school in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So we're very excited about that prospect. But there will be two more states beyond that, again, within five to six years. So the growth uh, on our within our organization, we're looking to double double our numbers within the next five to six years. Um, But for a a parent uh, or a family that's not located in one of those states where we are, I would first recommend that they go and explore the map on the Institute's website. We're cataloging for for everyone, just where Mm. classical schools, all 820 or so, be they public or private, where they are and what they have to offer. And we're trying to build that website so that it's more robust every day so that it really does encompass everybody out there. But I would also mention that Great Hearts, in part because of COVID last year, has launched an online platform. So I expect to see Great Hearts online growing and being available to more families who may want to consider that uh, in relation to their own families' choices if they can't necessarily get right to one of our brick and mortar schools. So I'd suggest look around, see if any of those 800 schools are in your neighborhood. If not, take a closer look at what's being made available through Great Hearts Online and perhaps some others that are going to get into this space as we want to bring classical education to the entire country. So more good things uh, to report in the future. We'll probably have to have another conversation next year to see where we're
1: at. Uh, absolutely. We, we would love that. Uh, again, we are here with Dr. Rob Jackson, Chief Academic Officer at uh, Great Hearts Academies and CLT Chief Operating Officer, Dr. Tracy Gardner and Great Hearts Mom as well. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks so much,
3: Jeremy.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.